0: This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. I appreciate your patience. I think you'll find tonight uh, we are going to kind of summarize, or I don't know what, that's not the right way to say it. Uh, We're going to complete um, the more of the abstract, uh, ideas of co- why contemporary theological issues are very important to consider. And, uh, and then we'll start getting in the next couple, we'll start next week into some very practical uh, looks at some things, which I know is probably uh, more interesting to you. But I do appreciate you bearing with me and, uh, and being patient as we look at some of these things. We will go to the Lord here in prayer. And uh, as Pastor said, you know, if, uh, if there's something that's not been mentioned and you want to take time Uh, Just, uh, we'll take a minute or two if there's any prayer requests we'd like to add tonight uh, to our prayer list. I'll go ahead and entertain any of those that you might have. All right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Anyone else want to add one? Yeah, Brother Schofield. for traveling, especially coming back after the snow. Yes. And the wedding. But I think the way he was talking, he's got this down. He knows how to do the snow. It's not so much, though, I'm not concerned about him as much as all the other people out on the road. Okay, yeah. Yes, sir. All right. Anyone else before we go to the Lord in prayer? Yeah. Did you say your nephew? Nephew. Nephew. All right, I apologize if you were on live stream, you may have heard those that were added, but uh, pastor's traveling, we pray for him, pray for Susan Barker who's battling COVID and uh, Bill's mom and nephew for, uh, uh, they'll come back to church. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for what you've done for us, we thank you for all that you've provided for us. Lord, I pray that we'll be able to take time right now. Help us to be still and to know that you are God. There's a lot going on, Father. We live in a busy world. We live in a messy world. Lord, I pray our focus will be on you. Forgive us where we failed you. We want to do better. We want to be better so that we can honor and glorify you with our lives. Lord, we bring these requests to you because we know you have the power not just to answer them. You have that power, but you have the, answer, the power to answer them the way you want. You're sovereign, so we pray your will be done. And so we lift up Ms. Barker. We pray that you would Watch over her. Lord, help her get through this COVID, and may she heal. Father, there's many who are battling it. Lord, I know our our society, our state, our city, even our church, we're tired of it. We're exhausted. But Father, I pray that in our exhaustion, we would lean on you for strength. That you would comfort us. Lord, we do pray for this young 12-year-old boy who's battling leukemia. Father, I it's unimaginable to me to have to watch my son do that. I pray for his parents. I pray for him. This is a, we know this is an opportunity for you to show yourself mighty to him and his family. Would you do that? Would you heal him, Father? Father, so that you would be honored and glorified through it all. But even in sickness, I pray for Sam. That even in the sickness, he would see your grace. We do pray for pastors. He travels. Be with him, Lord. There seems to be a lot of uh, weather that... uh, Maybe come in our way that this area, the South's not used to, Lord, I pray that you watch over him. And Lord, we do pray for this wedding on Saturday that you would bless the Hagbergs, Lord. And Lord, I pray that that it'll all be done to honor and glorify you. And Lord, we do pray for Bill's mom and nephew. Would you bring them back? I pray that they would see his testimony. And Father, his testimony would point to you. Lord, help us with this lesson this evening. I pray that it would be profitable. I pray that it would not be a waste of our time, that it wouldn't just be something to talk about, but I pray that it would be helpful. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I tell you, this has been a day. Uh, I don't know about how your day's going, but I think it's good to come tonight and just take take a sit down and 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 if you'll see your notes, there's no blanks on them. I'm I'm trying to make this as easy on you tonight as possible. There's little work that has to be done. I hope there's enough space for you to kind of scribble some thoughts and and, and look at some things we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, In our last lecture, we talked about the importance of worldview. And we talked about how that worldview is determined by the importance we place on the Scriptures, which we know to be the divine revelation of God. And and in our last lecture, we considered alternatives to attaining knowledge. Specifically, remember, we looked at the empiricist, we looked at the rationalist, and we looked at the fideist, and their tests for knowledge. And all these failed to provide us true knowledge. So instead, we turned to the validity of divine revelation as a source of true knowledge. And we found that divine revelation could give us true knowledge, or maybe knowledge that has value, knowledge that's worth knowing. So let's turn to a very familiar passage of Scripture this evening that will also serve to give us the title of this lecture. And we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, the title this evening is The Wiles of the Devil, Spiritual Warfare and Satan's Devices. Let me read the passage for you. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Can I add just a little nugget of thought right now to consider as we go through? Notice the word wiles, principalities, powers, rulers, And you can't really see it because of the way it is written, but flesh and blood and spiritual wickedness are all the same, but I think the word high places tells us something about it. What do all those words grammatically have in common? They are all in the plural. Plural. Look at that. Wiles, principalities, powers, rulers, High places, plural. To me, that is a very important key to understanding this passage. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, you might be asking, what does spiritual warfare actually have to do with contemporary theological issues? Haven't we been engaged in spiritual warfare since, well, the beginning of time? Since the Garden of Eden? That's not very contemporary. Adam and Eve were the first combatants to engage the enemy, and they were quickly overwhelmed. The spiritual and the carnal have been engaged against each other in battle ever since. So I think there are really two answers that we're going to look at tonight for why spiritual warfare is important in the context of of contemporary theological issues. And the first we need to know, the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to go back to verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 6. Now Paul tells the church at Ephesus the reason for putting on the whole armor of God. Now we're not going to take time this evening or even in any of these lectures to actually analyze the armor of God. We're not going to look at those pieces of armor. We're simply going to look at the purpose of the armor. That spiritual armor, the armor, the spiritual armor is given to the believer for protection against the attacks of the devil. Now, Paul, you'll look at this verse here. Paul uses a very fascinating word. You may be saying, I don't think it's that fascinating. I hope after tonight you'll say, that's a fascinating word. He uses the word Wiles. Look what he says. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You ever thought of that word, wiles? And maybe it would help if I gave you the Greek word. And then I think we'll parse the English translation a little more. So the Greek word for wiles... Is, are you ready for this? Methodius. Methodius. I really thought at that point you would go, ooh. But that's okay. We'll move on. So why did not the translators, well, before we go there, what word in English does methodius sound like? Methodology. Methods. Methodology. For those of you who said Amadeus, you were close, but not right. It's Methodius, all right? Of course, it is the word method. So we could, and we might be tempted to, restate this instruction by Paul as this. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the methods of the devil. This is the first tell and why this understanding spiritual warfare is critical to understanding contemporary theological issues and how to confront them. The devil uses methods to attack. So you may be asking why, if wiles comes from the Greek word methodeus, why did not the translators, specifically those that translated the version that I'm using, the King James Bible, why did they not use the word method in this word? Verse. I mean, obviously, if they came across Greek and they saw the word methodeus, they would say, ah, that's methods. Well, there's a few reasons for this. First, in the 17th century, when the King James Bible was first translated, did you know the word method in English at that point was relatively a term? It had only been in English usage, which this isn't long. I know it may sound long, but it had only been in the English language for about 200 years. And it was, it came out of the Nordic, Norwegian languages, Scandinavian languages, and really it was adopted, this word method was adopted as a product of the scientific revolution. If you remember at the time, even as the King James was written, the King James was translated towards the tail end of when science was really becoming uh, onto its own after the Renaissance. So by 1611, the word method was typically used at that time to refer to the regular systematic treatment of disease. It was how you treat a disease was your they used it in the English at the time. They said that's the method. Method was a medical term. The English had derived the word from the Latin methodus, which means a way of teaching or going. And the Latin was taken from the Greek, methodeus, which in classical Greek used the term also to mean scientific inquiry, a method of inquiry or investigation. You see, the classical Greeks, this is interesting about that word "methodus." they had taken actually two words. They had taken the preposition me- meta, which means to go after or come after, and hodos, meaning a method or a system or way of manner. So the Greek word literally means to pursue after a method. Now, Paul uses the word beautifully here. He uses it to describe what the devil is doing. The devil is methodically pursuing his prey. And we are to guard ourselves against his method. So it begs the question, though, why the word wiles was used and not methods. It still sounds like methods might be the better word. Well, here's an important thing to consider when it comes to why certain Greek or Hebrew words are translated to other certain English words. Just because an English word means something today, that does not mean that that word had that precise meaning in English 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300, or certainly a lot of times not even 500 years ago. Those words did not mean the same sometimes. Words change in meaning over time. We see this all the time. In fact, I don't think he's in here. He's not, so I'll talk about him. Last year, Scott McCain, he's our missionary to England, he compiled a list of some of these words. And I will just use his list. I appreciate his input. He doesn't know I'm doing this, but it was good, so I'm stealing it. Scott provided these words as examples of English words that have undergone a radical change in meaning since 1611. Some have fallen completely out of our usage. That we, even context, even if you look at the context as they're used in the Bible, barely clue us in. I'm not going to list all of Scott's examples, but here's a few. Anon. Assay. Barbarian. We use that word today. It's not meaning what it meant then. Beray. Careful means something different today than it did then. In fact, you'll remember it says, and be careful for nothing. I grew up, and I was like, I don't understand that. Be careful for nothing? I'm not careful for anything. (laughs) No, it means don't be anxious. Chambering. Go look that one up. Closet. It's in the Bible. It doesn't mean what what we mean it today. Coasts. Commend. You ever heard the term in the Bible, confusion of face? What does that mean? There's a word convenient that was used then. Conversation, used in our language today, but means something very different. Today, we uh, use it as as we talk to someone. In the King James, it means the way you talk and the way you walk. I used to have a youth pastor who used to say something like this. Your conversation is like this. Your walk talks and talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Say that Fast. Earnest it means something very different than it used to. Express, feign, the word gay is in the Bible. Haply, leasing, let, straight, strange, suffer. Untoward, that's one of my favorite words. Untoward, want, W-O-N-T, and what, to know. These are just examples of words that we may have them in our language today, but they're very different. And I like how Scott described these words. He said, these are words that are so out of use that the, the context barely clues us. You can read them. You don't, you, 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 we don't use them at all. We can even look at the Bible and say, you know what, I'm just going to read around and I'll probably, and, I, and I'm still lost. But you know what that does? It requires you to study. It requires you to study the Word of God. I'll just kind of throw this in: uh, uh, if you're ever interested in a really good book to read, um, it is called God's Secretaries, the translation of the King James Bible, and it was written to. It, it was written by an Anglican uh, in England who they 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 still have, take great pride in the King James version of the Bible, and in this book, uh, it really talks about the the geopolitical climate of England at the time, and how and why that was the time that, uh, the, that God chose to translate the, uh, the Bible into English uh, at that time. Well, there's other versions, but that specific version. And, and it's excellent. It's an excellent book. And, and in the book, the, the author, he talks about how the, they, when the, the King James tri, uh, translators, you may have heard people say, oh, the Bible was written in the king's English. Well, in fact, it wasn't. If you read the King James, or if you read even Shakespeare, actually nobody talked like that at the time. That was the language that was reserved for writing. And we have the same thing. We, uh, uh, we have the common vernacular, and then we have, well, we've gone the other way, right? So we have good English, and then we have texting English, right? Uh, and uh, so we, we hope we don't talk a lot of the times the way we text. Uh, you know, LOL, and uh, and so uh, he talks. Though so he says that was they 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 knew that the that the language, the vernacular, the common language was it wasn't precise enough, and they said, and and as we translate the Bible, we want to have uh, uh, a language that expresses the grandeur of the Bible, and so. I don't want to say they invented this language, this version of English that you'll see in the King James translation, but it was made specifically for the King James because they wanted to capture the grandeur, for example. You ever read that verse in James chapter 1 that says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and does what? He abradeth not. And you ever think, what does abradeth mean? Abradeth a is an old English word. It doesn't mean the braid's up in your hair. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an old English word. And they, when they came to that passage scripture, they looked at the Greek, and they looked at the words, and they said, because they really wanted to do as close to translation as possible to the Greek. When they got to there, they, re- they read, you know, kind of a Greek euphemism that said, and God doesn't, literally will not kick you in the teeth. That's what that word abraded means. He's not going to pop you in the mouth. And they thought, that doesn't capture the grandeur of our God. To say, God's not going to kick you in the face. They just felt that was beneath And so they said, upbraideth. They came up with this word, upbraideth. And that is the beauty, I believe, of the King James Bible, is you can read it. And, and in fact, you can read it with your children. And yeah, there's places that, uh, that you'll blush, and there's times when you'll read it and you'll think, wow, but the Bible doesn't go overboard. It's eloquent. It's, grand. it's, it's beautiful in its language. And so some of these words that were created were to capture the grandeur of the language. But as we get back here to this word translated wiles in Ephesians, methodeus, we need to handle this one a little differently because we do actually have the word wiles in our current vernacular. This word is different because while words have passed out of usage, or maybe changed meaning, and we use them differently. And so that's why you need to go and look and see what those words meant and mean. And uh, when we come to this word, methodeus, it is different because the word method at time of translation to the King, of the King James Bible, it carried, remember, it carried a medical connotation. The translators were not trying to convey that we should put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the systematic treatment of diseases by the devil. That would not be what this passage is saying. And if they would have used the word method, that's what the people at the time would have read it as. That was what method, even as it evolved in use over time, meant in the early 16th and 17th century. It is as if the word, though, method, this is fascinating about this word method, in the Greek that was adopted into the English and then was applied to science, but over the years, we now use method closer back to the way the Greeks actually meant methodeus. Remember I said, yeah, they used it as a medical term, but it was also used for them as a pursuit after a method. That's what methodeus meant, to go after a method. And so we use that, we have methods today, and we understand what that word method means. You say, why are you saying all this? The context of this verse illustrates, though, a more meaningful definition to Methodius than a methodical, almost robotic pursuit like we would have. So to say... And maybe you don't read it this way, but to say, put on the whole armor of God so that you could stand against the methods of the devil, to me just sounds like the devil is going through a robotic, uh, uh, methodical pursuit. It's much deeper than that. The devil is not just going through motions, he has strategy. And this brings us to why the translators were very precise with their use of the word wiles as opposed to methods i think we would do a severe injustice to this word wiles to understanding it if we did not look at perhaps the most incredible example of how this word is used in 1949 a long slim sick sorry looking skeleton of a character was created. Chuck Jones and Michael Maltese created this guy. The two artists depicted their character as a means of parodying the traditional cat and mouse chase popularized by the cartoon Tom and Jerry. Now, in Jones and Maltese's version, they created a living, this is their words, a living, breathing allegory of the desire to want. Their character was always on the hunt for his prey. A witty, quick-moving, elusive bird with a signature (laughs) beep-beep. And you remember the coyote's name? Wiley. Wiley Coyote. His name was a play on the word Wiley. Because the coyote... He didn't rely on his natural guile or his natural instincts to hunt, but rather he would concoct elaborate plans and absurdly complex gadgets purchased from the mail-order company Acme to catch the roadrunner, and he was never content. He was never successful, but he was never content. He wanted more and if he could have catch caught roadrunner he would have devoured him that's how the word wiles is used in ephesians it's more than just methods employed by the devil that we are to protect ourselves against these are strategies that's what the word means The translators used a word that at the time and to this day means stratagem, slick, sly. Can you see now the richness of that word, wiles? It is more precise than merely just methods. The word captures both the strategy and the cunning of the devil. Now, if you were to look at other translations, to their credit, they do not use the word method either. They too understand that this is much deeper than merely the process or way the devil works. For example, the NIV, the ESV, and the New American Standard Version, they all translate it schemes. The New Living Translation translates it strategies, while others use tricks, some versions deceits, while others tactics. But only a few, to include the New King James Version, join the King James in translating it Wiles. While schemes, strategies, tricks, deceits, tactics are all better than methods, they all fail to capture the slyness. Maybe tricks does, but they fail to capture the slyness coupled with strategy that Wiles captures. Methods talk to tactics, while Wiles deals with strategy. You say, well, what's the difference? Tactics are really just what is being done on the battlefield. In fact, we have these conversations all the time. As you move up in rank, you move beyond tactics, and you start dealing with strategy. Tactics are for the infantry to go and execute on the battlefield the battle. It's just what they do. Honestly, I've been a chaplain for the infantry. There's not a lot of thinking that has to go on with the Marine Corps infantry. Just go and do your job. Tactics. Pull the trigger. Point the pointy end downrange and pull the trigger. Strategy is much more involved. So why spend so much time talking about this word wiles? Because we are commanded to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the cunning, sly, deceitful strategies of the devil. This goes well beyond just knowing that the devil is trying to attack you. Or even knowing what he is doing to attack you. Oh, I'm just being attacked. We're very keen on just talking about what? It it is knowing how the enemy is attacking and how he is trying to overcome you. It is recognizing his strategy, not merely his tactics. I'm confident that most every military member, or at least a military officer, has had to read or has at least heard a lecture on warfare where the principles in that lecture are outlined in what a book we call, or what's called, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Usually, Sun Tzu comes up into the conversation when warfare is discussed. The text, The Art of War, is required reading for every officer who pursues a diploma in joint professional military education. In this ancient Chinese military treatise, written somewhere between 500 and 430 B.C., By a guy we don't actually know if he ever existed. He wrote the following about knowing your enemy. Here's what Sun Tzu says. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. He was pretty bold. Know your enemy and know yourself, and you don't have to worry about losing. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. We've whittled that down to where now we'll just say, know your enemy. (laughs) If you want to win a war, you have to know your enemy. Now, I know we're being live streamed, so I hope the Russians aren't listening. But what we need to know is what the Russians want to do in Ukraine. That's the big question right now. What do they want to do? we are concerned more about what the enemy wants. What is their strategy? We spend millions, billions of dollars on intelligence to learn strategy. Sun Tzu's words here have become a proverb in military science. If you're going to have any success on the battlefield, you must know your enemy. It's not just battlefield, but it's in football. It's in sports. Coaches watch Film over and over and over so that they can see the strategy of the other team. The Patriots will video things and steal those signs so they can know strategy. The Houston Astros got in trouble because they wanted to steal signs so they could they could control the strategy. You must know your enemy's tactics. We must know. The devil's tactics, yes, we need to know what he does, but we also have to know his strategies. And one of our biggest impediments to fighting the spiritual warfare is we do not understand the devil's strategies. We may know that he uses the tactic of lying. We may know that he uses the tactic of deceit. We may know he uses the tactic of chaos. We even know that we are not fighting flesh and blood enemies. But like Paul says, we are fighting against, and I'll read it again, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. We know a lot about methods. We don't know much about his strategies. We don't know how he is lying to us how he is deceiving. He's excellent at it. It's no wonder we don't know because he's deceiving us. We, know, we don't know exactly how he is sowing chaos, but we see chaos all around us. This is the first reason why, I understand, why understanding spiritual warfare is important to confronting contemporary theological issues. It helps us recognize the strategies or the wiles of the devil or of Satan. Now, just a real quick but probably obvious point before moving on to the second reason that we need to understand spiritual warfare. Again, I go back to notice that word wiles is plural. Like I said, this may be obvious, but the devil has more than one strategy. It's always changing, and the attacks are always coming. We should not, we cannot think we have figured out his ways. For as soon as we do, just like wily e. Coyote, the devil will come up with some other clever, deceitful trick. He will strategize, and he will re-strategize, because he is desperate, and he is seeking whom he may devour. This is why... This is important to contemporary theological issues because we're going to look at some strategies that he's using now. But I promised two reasons for studying spiritual warfare and why it's important to the context of contemporary theological issues. The first was it, help us, it helps us to recognize that the devil has strategies. Now, we haven't really gone into what those strategies are yet. That's coming. That's going to be in the future lectures that we're going to have. We're going to look at some strategic things that are being done. The second reason, though, is it helps us to know the enemy. Perhaps we should have dealt with this before pinpointing the importance of knowing devil's strategy. In other words, we should have at least named who the enemy was first but i think we are fine to consider it now we have found that the devil has strategy and we need to guard against it but let's go back again to that word wiles that word which we have already said in greek as "methodeis," did you know it occurs another time in the bible one other time and it's also in the book of ephesians Take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read this passage for you, but before I do, a little context will help. This is a beautiful chapter. Chapter 4 is one of Paul's great treatises on the purpose of the church. You, you, you'll remember, you might recognize some of the words there. The church is to be unified. It is, remember those words, it is one body with one spirit, with one ho- called into one hope. It has one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. He then says that Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastors of teach and teachers or pastors and teachers, so that the saints would be perfected or what we would say made complete or matured. These offices are to minister and edify the body of Christ and so. They do this so that the believer will not be, and here's where I pick it up in verse 14. These apostles, these prophets, these evangelists, pastors and teachers, they're they're made for the perfecting of the saint, for the edifying of the body of Christ, so that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby, and here's the word we're looking for, they lie in wait to deceive. Methodeus. That phrase, lie in wait to deceive, is simply, in Greek, just the one word. Methodeus. Now, If you don't mind, I think it might help us if I gave a very wooden translation here, a very literal translation. And then you'll say, I think I appreciate the King James better, uh, because this is really just very literal. So that, the whole verse, so that no longer we might be infants being tossed by waves and being cared about by every wind of teaching in the cunning of men in craftiness with a view to the wiles of deceit. that is just a very english chap- tavis long translation of the greek very this is why the king james is better all right i was looking, I was looking at different ones but i think i like the nasb yep well look let's look at this apostles prophets evangelists pastors and teachers were provided for the specific purpose of maturing ministering to and edifying believers so that they would not be led astray by men this is the important thing, men who are crafty and strategize about ways to deceive them. You, when you think about it, that's an incredible responsibility for those who give themselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word. This is a sobering charge to those who feed the flock of God, taking the oversight thereof. That they are to protect, they're, they're given so that they can protect from men who are crafty and deceitful. What did we read in Ephesians chapter 6? The wiles of the devil. Now we're reading it, if I could say it like this. There's also the wiles of men. There's strategies out there that are produced by people. Now, it is true the devil is the enemy. And we cannot lose sight of another enemy that is just as ruthless there are those who want to drive believers away who lie and wait for innocent blood. Paul says, watch out for those whose strategy it is to get you carried away by believing false doctrine. So knowing the strategy is important, but so is knowing who the enemy is, who the enemy is that employs that strategy. And we see two strategists here. The devil has his wiles, and humanity has their wiles. I think we could classify these two enemies as the world and the devil. Both have an agenda. Both are at enmity with God. Both will ruthlessly attack the child of God. And the perfect storm comes when the world and the devil begin to appeal to your flesh. Now, I know what you're thinking. I say that a lot. I really don't. I'm just going to tell you what I think I know you're thinking. We might want to say that those who strategize to teach false doctrine and deceive believers, they're just part of the devil's strategy. That's that's just part of the wiles of the devil. Yeah, the man has their own, but they're part of the Satan's. They're just pawns in Satan's hands. Now, this might be true, but I think we need to also consider that Satan, this is very important. Satan is not omnipotent. Satan is not omnipresent. He does not have the power of God. He is mortal. He's not eternal. Now, allow me to illustrate it like this. You've heard the age-old accusation against Satan, right? You've heard it. The devil made me do it. Let's test the validity of this accusation. Strictly fictional, but allow me to illustrate it like this. Let's say I come up to Ron Zellman. And in a fit of anger and rage, I sock Ron Zellman right in the mouth. I mean, I punch him so hard. If you were here last time, I hit Dave Bassinet. So it's a very violent class. I hit Ron so hard His eyes start watering, and he starts to bleed. I mean, I really give it to him. Did I assault Ron Zellman? You bet I did. Unprovoked, was I wrong for it? Yes. Now, let's say that at the same exact time that I am socking Ron Zellman in the face, Mike... He goes up to someone else and smacks that person in the face. Yeah, you, you're, you're violent. I've seen it. i seen it in your eyes. Mike goes up to someone. Now, exact time that I'm socking Ron Zellman in the face, he goes up and he socks someone in the face. I mean, his, that guy's eyes start watering and he starts to bleed. So here's the question. Who made me do it? And who made him do it? I mean, we did this at the exact same time. Who made me punch Ron Zellman? And who made Mike Card punch someone else? To say it was Satan would be, here's what you would be saying if you said it was Satan. It would forfeit your own free will. He made me do it. I, I had no control. And number two, it would, be, it would be to admit Satan is able to be in more than one place at any given time. And if both of those are true, Satan then is omnipotent over you, and he's omnipresent, which makes him no different than the God that we say we serve. So I think we need to be careful that we do not give Satan more credit than he's due. Is he more powerful than us? Yes. But can he be in all places at all times? No. Now, I know again what you're thinking. Yeah, but he has his minions. He's got his demons who are helping him. I don't know how many there are. But I do know that there's a spiritual warfare that's going on. And that there's a fight that we cannot see. And I know that there's a battle that is raging. But there is still a finite amount of even those demons. They don't have control over the child of God. But there are men on this earth who are just as culpable as Satan in their deceitful teaching and preaching. They will give an account, and to say, Satan made me teach that way, will not suffice. They will be held accountable for their own deeds because they were of their father, the devil. Now, we need to be careful of what is being taught and preached behind the pulpits of our churches. For there are men who have evil strategies. Now, do I believe that Satan has an influence? Yes. But I want you to consider this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15 says this. For such are false prophets, apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their work. I've got to be careful with this illustration. I think but one of the best explanations of this verse comes from my father. When I was growing up, there was this guy. You, you've probably heard of him. I'm going to say his name, and then we'll blush. His name is Marilyn Manson. I, I don't want to tell you too much about him because this guy was, is, is pure evil. If you don't know who he is, you are not missing out in your life. Ironically, he did attend a Christian school in Canton, Ohio, a same school that I did some of my student teaching at. I was after him. He was actually kicked out of the Christian school in 10th grade. He's, he's a little mellowed in his later years now. In fact, he says he was kicked out of his uh, public, or Christian school, so his parents put him in public school, and he was beat up all the time there. He said, at least the Christians were nice to me. But Marilyn Manson, in the late 90s, claimed to be a minister in the Church of Satan. And like I said, he's backtracked some of his satanic claims, but in the 90s, he was considered the highest profile Satanist ever. I mean, the names of his songs and albums was just horrendous. He was the poster child for Satanism, evil, and the heavy metal rock music scene. If you weren't careful, you would look at him and think... Man, that guy is frightening. He's so evil. Satan is really using him. But my dad, I remember my dad, he had a different take. Because I remember we were talking about, I was like, that this guy. And now, I didn't listen to the music. I didn't even, I just, you would just see him on the news or see him and he was just, just a horrible person. But my dad would say this. He would say that people like Marilyn Manson... He'd say, those are Satan's failures. Sure, they can be pretty terrifying, but it's not them you really need to be worried about. Satan's successes are those men who stand in suits and ties and preach false doctrine behind our pulpits. Those are the ones you need to be worried about. That's right. They transform themselves into an angel of light. What they say, they do, sounds so good, and they look so sharp, and their churches are big. And they'll hold up their Bible, and they'll say something about it. They'll never really open it. They'll just talk from it. You need to be incredibly discerning and careful for what I say here for what pastor preaches. I'm not saying you say, well, pastor, I don't know if I agree with that. No, I'm talking you, like the Bereans, go back and search the scriptures to see if what he says is so. He would tell you to do that. Now, when I was considering graduate schools on the Navy's dime, I selected one called George Mason University. The Navy gave us choices to go to different schools, and they preferred that we would go to Duke Divinity or Princeton Theological, or Boston University, or Emory down in Georgia. But I chose to go to a secular school. I wanted to go to George Mason because I knew I would be going into the jaws of secularism. Had I gone to one of the nominally Christian schools, I knew I would just get secularism, but under the guise of Christianity. Satan's grand strategy is to infiltrate churches and make it look appealing. So now that we, I think, we agree that knowing the devil has more than just methods, but he has strategies, it's important now, I think that we would also agree, and we know who the enemy is, it's important now that we go back and look at the strategy that I think the devil is employing currently in our contemporary culture. Just a few minutes ago, I mentioned the devil has many strategies, and what we are about to talk about is just the current strategy. One thing that should always give us comfort is the truth, though, and this is something we cannot forget through this entire course. Jesus has built his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We know that Ephesians 5.27 tells us he will present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So the devil's strategies today will change as he discovers he is failing to defeat the church. But for now, let's consider the contemporary strategy or even strategies that we are facing. Because we could step back and say, well, he's not gonna win, he's not gonna defeat the church, but what we're finding is our churches are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. First is the strategy of secularization. In our last lecture, we talked about this, but I'd like to go into a little more detail in this lecture and demonstrate even more of it in our following lectures. There are three words that we are going to use over the next couple minutes, and they're all related, but they are not all the same. And that first word is the word secular. Now, we have used that term repeatedly when I talk about a secular worldview. The second term that we are going to look at is secularism, and the third is secularization. As a matter of review, in our last lecture, I mentioned that our world is becoming increasingly secular. We use the classical definition of secular as that which is only concerned for the present world as it moves through time. It is an emphasis on the worldly instead of the spiritual. In fact, the way our society is, we really are the the fruition, if you will, of the enlightenment and of the renaissance, which even our government, which I love our constitution and I've sworn to protect it, but uh, uh, what... What they did when they created separation of church and state, which is not actually in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, when Thomas Jefferson used that term where he wrote to the Danbury Baptist, and he says, I believe that there is a wall built of separation between the church and state, I think Thomas Jefferson was completely wrong. But he was talking from his Enlightenment perspective, where you've got government and you've got the church. And of course, you've got to look back at what they were coming out of Europe, where the church had completely misused its power. So now we see in our world where there has been this complete separation, and it isn't separate but equal. It's come now where you are in the church, you don't have anything to say, the government will tell you. It's almost a complete reversal of what we saw during the Catholic in the dark ages, when the Catholic church said to the government, we will tell you how to, how to govern. Now the government is telling us, we will tell you how to worship. This temporal focus, though, is distinguished from any consideration for the eternal. And we said in our lectures before that a secular worldview is diametrically opposed to the biblical mandate for Christians to set their affections on things above. As Christians, we should resist this humanist and biblical tendency, and the only effective way to do this is to remain grounded in Scripture. We have to have our affections set on things above. So that's the idea of secular. It's, 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 It's this idea of separating what is eternal from what is temporal. Secularism is the second word to consider, and we're getting a lot more dangerous here. For a long time, secularism was something that was happening on the outside of the church walls, It was a post-Christian phenomenon of conscious rejection of a Christian worldview. It was the antithesis to a Christian worldview. Christians, we hunkered down in our churches, in our little holy huddles, hoping we could resist the secularists on the outside. The mentality has been, if the secularists will just stay in their lane, we'll stay in ours. We'll preach against them. We'll pray for them but we're not gonna engage them. And consider how R.C. Sproul, he gives this poignant description of the Christian view of secularism in our world in his book, Classical Apologetics. Here's how he describes the church. Wearing a benign mask. the secularist loudly proclaims his commitment to religious tolerance on behalf of those weak-minded souls who still cannot bear to face a hostile and worse or worse indifferent universe without the narcotic effect ecclesiastical opium the church is safe from vicious persecution at the hands of the secularist as educated people have finished with stake burning circuses and torture racks no martyr's blood is shed in the west as long as the church knows her place and remains quietly at peace on her modern reservation let the babes pray and sing and read their bibles continuing steadfast in their intellectual retardation the church's extinction will come by not by sword or pillory but by a quiet death of irrelevance. It will pass away with a whimper and not a bang. But let the church step off the reservation. Let her penetrate once more the culture of the day, and the Janus face of secularism will change from benign smile to a savage snarl. Christians, stay in your church. You can read, you can pray, you can do whatever you want, but stay in the church. And for so long, I think our churches have done that and said, all right, we'll just hunker down and we'll just worship God here. And that's why I think we're finding in our society the church is becoming more and more irrelevant. Secularism is this ideology of the philosophical neutral word secular. Remember, put an ism on the end of a word and it becomes very negative. Secularism hates Christianity. It is a movement to eradicate Christianity because Christianity's eternal view is incompatible with the temporal view. Secularism was something that we resisted when we went out into the world. We taught about it on Sundays and we hope we weren't affected by it on Monday through Saturday, but then something happened. We found out that while we were content to stay detached from engaging the world around us, We did something. We said, we won't go out into the world and win souls. We'll just invite them to church. Maybe the pastor will preach a gospel message on Sunday morning. And what's problem is people started coming into churches where the gospel really wasn't preached, and they joined and they infiltrated the churches. Secularism discovered it can infiltrate, and we find it now in our churches. And I'm going to talk a little bit about secularization in the coming weeks and provide examples of how it is common in our churches. Secularization is the process of secularism. It is the process of converting something from religious to secular. If secularism is the philosophy, secularization is the strategy. It's the battle plan. It's the process, and the church has, in some ways, reacted quite embarrassingly to it. It's a turning of the attention from the eternal to the temporal. It is shifting our view of the eternal, that Christian worldview, to the temporal or the secular worldview. Real quick here and I'm done. I think we see an excellent example of this in the book of Genesis. Remember when we talked about a Christian worldview, it is going to be a Christian worldview that must be determined by Scripture. So to attack the Christian worldview, all one has to do is attack the divine revelation that informs it. This strategy goes back to the garden where the serpent made the initial salvo by asking, Yea, hath God said? The serpent wasted no time attacking God's revelation to Adam and Eve. And what was his end game? It was to get them to view the world through a set of eyes that elevated them to God's, knowing good and evil. In fact, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat. What was Adam and Eve's concern? For Eve, at least, it was only about the temporal, the secular. She wanted immediate gratification. She wanted good food. She wanted something nice to look at. She wanted to be savvy in the world in which she lived. Churches are still trying to do that. How do we be savvy in the world in which we live? All of these were desires in the tangible temporal world that she lived in. This meets the very definition of secular. The moment she took the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she simultaneously rejected the tree of life and its promises of the eternal. To Eve, the secular was greater than the sacred. But Adam was not far behind her. We know Eve was deceived, but what when the Bible says she gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat, we see that Adam made a conscious decision to reject the eternal. Now, some surmise that Adam knew the fate of Eve, and out of love, he took a bite of the fruit so he could die with her. You may be tempted to swoon at this romantic gesture, so... For those romantics, let's say it's true. Let's say that's Adam's motive. Adam knew what he was doing, but out of love for Eve, he ate the fruit so he could die with her. If that is true, it is another example of placing the temporal. In this case, companionship, even affection over the eternal. We do not actually know Adam's motive, but we do have a record of Adam and Eve's reaction. Instead of refocusing their view on the eternal, you know what they do? They buckle down on the secular after they ate the eyes of them both were open and they knew they were naked they were immediately self-aware of where they were but they were not aware of their spiritual status rather they were self-aware of their existence in this temporal world and it made them uncomfortable they did not seek repentance but instead like the little child who covers their eyes thinking the world disappears They hid themselves, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Their sin impeded their ability to grasp object permanence in the eyes of an all-knowing God. They were immediately made wise only to the temporal world. This has been Satan's strategy from the beginning of time. Get you enamored with the temporal world. If he can make the church self-aware of their existence in the temporal world, they will be of no value in the spiritual. Satan's goal is to secularize the church. And he will use men to do it. How he is doing that in our conservative theological churches that are of like faith is really the meat of this course. And it will be the topic of our next lecture that I've titled, A Glorious Church. And so we're going to look at some of the ways he's infiltrating the church. Any thoughts or questions before we go? Yes, sir. That's not the Chesapeake Trail, is it? That's a blessing, I mean, uh, that's God's yeah. Yeah. You bring up an excellent point. The world is still looking for hope. And in fact, I'll share a statistic with you next week on how many people in churches are saying, we actually, it's funny, there's two things they say, we actually want longer sermons and more meaningful sermons. Now, I want to be very careful, especially if you're listening on live stream and say, wow, that guy really bashes the church. I am speaking at large. I believe we have a phenomenal Bible-believing, Bible-teaching and preaching church. And I want that to be very clear. <laughs> I, do not, I, I do not think but that, we, that we have compromised in our pre- teaching and preaching, but I think we also need to be very careful because it's just a matter of one generation and it goes away. I've been in churches, many different churches, and I've seen them split, I've seen them I've seen I've seen them revive. There is hope. And I think I've ran by your Bible and water on a trail. Because I've seen it. <laughs> so, amen. I, yeah, brother. Uh, when you were talking about translation time in 16, mm-hmm. seven, or 16, 17, uh, that was contemporary with Shakespeare. Do you think he had an influence on that as part of the language? I don't know. I uh, I mean, I have a thought. But my thought is really irrelevant um I, I, did did they, did he have a uh, an influence on Shakespeare or did Shakespeare have an influence on yeah no I, I think I think the king had an influence on a lot of people uh, and so I, I think you know and of course uh, Shakespeare was more with queen elizabeth but uh, but yeah i think I think there was an influence and and we could get into this, but i I hope I wasn't another thing if I need to just make sure i 'm clear on i i while well, I might have heard things, or you might have heard things that I said where I said, well, this version uses this. I still do believe the King James Version is the very best translation. And I hope I was clear that that's why I think "wiles" is the best translation of that word. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, uh, that's just a, a point to think on. But uh, um, the English language at the time, um, there, we could go into a lot of things about the English language and why that was translated at that time. But uh, I do believe it was all in divine providence. Um, but uh, I don't, to answer your question, I don't know uh, much about Shakespeare. In fact, I, uh, I try to avoid reading any of it, even in school. I, you know. All right. Any last thoughts or questions? Thank you so much for your patience, and your, uh, uh, we're just a little bit over, but uh, I do appreciate your attention. And next week we will look at a glorious church. And we are going to look at some of the doctrines that are creeping in. And, and here's the thing that I used to be able to say this. Doctrines where, in, a, in a just an innocent uh, look at the religious section at Barnes & Noble, you might pick up a book and start reading it, and it's like, wow, this is wrong. But nobody goes to Barnes & Noble anymore. So as you're looking at Amazon or you see even Christian uh, book companies that uh, sell some of these things, there are some doctrines that are being taught that I think we need to be very careful about. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray you bless us as we leave. Here, I pray that you watch over us. We thank you for all you do for us. Lord, would you protect us, please? Protect our minds. You have saved our souls. Father, I pray that we would walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And Lord, I pray that we would redeem the time because the days are evil. Thank you for being our God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening.